Support for Intended is provided by Male Contraceptive Initiative, a 501c3 nonprofit that advances the research and development of new methods of male contraception. We promote male contraception with scientific granting, advocacy, and outreach in order to bring about an inclusive landscape of contraception to people around the world. More information is available at malecontraceptive.org, where you can find our grants, our frequently asked questions, and understand what the future of contraception could be. That's malecontraceptive.org. In 2007, I was reading an article in the Journal of Andrology. One thing mentioned that I had never heard about some studies with this drug called WIN18446 that they thought was going to be a male contraceptive. That guy's John Amory, and he's a doctor of internal medicine, and he specializes in male reproduction. Um, my name is John Amory. I'm a professor of medicine here at the University of Washington. And I am and he's been involved in male contraception for over 20 years. John says that he really likes history. And this paper was talking about the history of science and things that happened in the 1940s and the 1950s. And he immediately grabbed onto it because it's science about male reproduction, his field. But also, it's a cool story, right? Birth control for men. And not just that, but birth control for men that existed 60 years ago. John wanted to know what happened to Win 18446. And I, I almost stopped short. I mean, I'm just reading this history article, and all of a sudden, there's this thing I've never heard of. And uh, I thought, that's interesting. So, of course, I looked up the references, and frankly, there were several groups working on this compound called WIN18446 that they serendipitously found uh, suppre reversibly suppressed sperm counts. And uh, it started out, WIN stands for Winthrop Pharmaceuticals, which is the company that, was, um, that made the compound. And they had been trying to find drugs that would work for parasitic infestations, helminths or worms. And when they gave it to the test animals, they noticed that they couldn't breed them anymore. And investigation led to the insight that it was suppressing sperm production in the males. It didn't have any effect on the females. And so then the people started studying this as a possible male contraceptive, and they studied it in multiple species, and it worked in every one. And then they actually even studied it in men. I mean, that's crazy, right? They were looking at something that stopped worm infections, of all things, and they stumble upon the first birth control for men. I mean, this is in the middle of the century. The explosion of contraceptive options for women, things like implants and IUDs and pills and rings and shots and so forth, that hadn't even happened yet. That was decades away. But this research on the wind molecule, it happened before all of that, and it never made it to the market. I mean, this is in a time, remember, when the actual, the female pill had not yet been approved. That didn't happen until 1961. So all of this research was going on in the late 50s and early 60s, and I mean, they thought that this was going to work. A few different research groups were working on the early studies, and like modern-day clinical trials, when you start putting drugs into people, you start small. Groups of people like 10 or 20 or 50, so that you can minimize the risk to patients. These early small studies for WIN were apparently going well, and one researcher was leading the helm as they grew and went into more men. This researcher's name was Al Paulson. Uh, Al Paulson, who uh, was here in, in Seattle, studied it in about 100 men uh, for periods of up to a year. And it reversibly suppressed sperm production in all of these men. And they were ecstatic. Those early studies looked really good. 
men were taking the drugs and their sperm counts were dropping low enough that they thought, yeah, this will work as a birth control. And reports are that they tolerated the treatment well. There was a little side effect, like people were reporting stomach pain, but it wasn't anything that worried anyone. But there was one thing the researchers didn't understand. They didn't know exactly how when dropped those sperm counts. They just kind of stumbled on this drug in the lab, and since it stopped animals from breeding, they kept running with it, even though they weren't sure why it stopped them from breeding. They also hadn't tested it in couples. They were just testing it in individual, single men, and testing sperm counts while these men were taking the drug. And there was a reason why all these men were single. They had no idea the mechanism of action, and they hadn't really tested it for pregnancy prevention, but they were because they were, Al Paulson was studying these men who were prisoners. Times have changed, but back then prisoners were often willing and unwilling participants in human research. At the time, that was considered ethical. But as far as these studies go, the men were willing to be in them and supposedly were compensated. The tests on prisoners were going pretty smoothly. They were taking the drug, their sperm counts were dropping, and then when the prisoners stopped taking the drug, the sperm counts went right back up, which showed them that it was reversible, too. But you might ask, why don't we have Win 18446 birth control out there for men today? Well, there's always a catch. Then one day, they knew they were in trouble because one subject said to them, you know, you can't, you can't give this to people. And Al Paulson said, why? And he said, well, you get really sick when you drink. And Al Paulson was like, what do you mean? This raised two questions. The first and the obvious one is, wait, aren't these guys in prison? But the second question is a way bigger deal for the success of Wynn. Why do they get sick if they drink alcohol? I mean, it's hard to imagine men all over the world jumping on top of this drug, especially in the 1950s and 60s if they can't drink when they take it. And that was how they found out that these, this drug, Win 18446, although very effective, reversible male contraceptive, um, caused what are called disulfiram reactions. And disulfiram reactions are this reaction you get when you uh, take a medicine, you're fine, but if you drink, you get violently ill. Disulfiram is a modern-day drug used to treat alcohol dependence. It works by inhibiting something in the liver that processes alcohol. It's an enzyme called aldehyde dehydrogenase. You see, when you drink, the body has this giant pile of alcohol molecules that it has to break down and metabolize. And it works on that pile by taking the molecules and changing them into intermediates and byproducts that get used in different ways. It goes from this compound into that compound, and eventually it gets excreted. But some of those intermediates, or those in-between products, they can be toxic. This enzyme is one part of the chain that's always chugging along and always processing, and when you stop it from working, the buildup of toxic byproducts is what makes you sick. Think of an assembly line. If the person in the middle stops working, all the people before are still making their parts and sending them along and they start to pile up. This pile up, it happens when alcohol dehydrogenase, the guy in the middle, stops working. And all that piling up of stuff that's getting sent down the line is what actually makes you sick. You know, this medicine, they're called disulfiram reactions because there's this medicine, disulfiram, that doctors sometimes prescribe to people to cause the same reaction when they drink. And it's used to treat alcoholics. So it's a form of aversion therapy. So if men take this drug, WIN18446, their sperm counts plummet. As far as that measurement goes, it'll work great as a birth control. And when they stop taking the drug, everything goes back to normal. It's reversible. But there's that big catch. You get horribly sick when you drink. That really put a damper on things. So that was kind of it for WIN because people thought, well, if you can't drink, people aren't, men aren't going to take it. 
this was this this was the fifties and sixties. I think people drank a lot more than they do now. Anyway, um, at least as judged by Mad Men. <laughs> Interest in wind died out in the early 1960s, and it pretty much stayed dead. Nobody looked at it, used it, or really even worked with it. John, in the present day, who was reading about wind, found little bits like a group that used it in animals once or twice, but this group still didn't know why sperm counts were plummeting, and that made it difficult to understand what they were seeing, much less how they could use wind to make a birth control pill. John was reading all the papers and doing everything he could, but he just couldn't figure out why wind caused both infertility and such an extreme reaction to alcohol. So I read about that, and it was very interesting. And then literally the, the next day, this is in 2007, we'd invited Mike Griswold to come talk here at the University of Washington. Mike Griswold is an academic researcher who's really well known for his work in sperm production, and particularly important here, how vitamin A is required to make new sperm. Vitamin A is an essential vitamin, like you need it for vision, bone health, and so on. But it's really important for sperm production because it acts as a signal to turn on sperm production when it gets converted into another molecule, retinoic acid. He was going on and on about vitamin A and retinoic acid as essential for sperm production. And then the slide that really got me was he showed that vitamin A is converted to retinoic acid by an aldehyde dehydrogenase. And I'm telling you, I, a light went off in my head. Aldehyde dehydrogenase? That's the enzyme disulfiram hits, that thing they target for aversion therapy. The enzyme that, when it's working, it prevents you from getting sick when you drink. And Mike, who's lecturing for John, is saying that it's essential for sperm production too? Was this why when 18446 made the prisoners sick when they drank, and why it turned off sperm production? Because of aldehyde dehydrogenase? When inhibits an aldehyde dehydrogenase. That how, that's how it causes the disulfiram reaction. What if it's also inhibiting the aldehyde dehydrogenase in the testis that converts vitamin A to retinoic acid? See, aldehyde dehydrogenase isn't just one enzyme. There are actually lots of them, and they're in different forms in different parts of the body. And these aldehyde dehydrogenases, or ALDHs for short, they have different forms that are expressed in the testes and the liver and lots of other places. And they all do the same general chemical reaction, but there are little itty-bitty differences between them. Some of them are always present, some of them get made when they're needed, the ones in the liver are used for alcohol processing, and others, like the one in the testes, are used for other stuff. Those intermediates that make you sick when they build up, apparently they get used for other stuff too, like making new sperm. So since people get sick when they take win and drink, it makes sense that the drug is probably sticking to the liver version of ALDH and inhibiting the reaction that's part of the chain of processing alcohol. Wouldn't it make sense that the reason wind stops sperm production is because it binds to the ALDH and the testes too? John digested, he thought through his theory, and then he decided to run it by Mike Griswold, that guy that gave him the idea in the first place. So I emailed Mike and I was like, you know, these compounds, I think, block retinoic acid production. And of course, he just about did a backflip. And since then, I decided, well, let's do an animal study and figure out if this is the mechanism of action. John found a collaborator, and they started testing rabbits with WIN18446. They gave the rabbits the drug for about four months, and then as the rabbit's sperm count dropped, the rabbits became infertile. And when they stopped taking the drug, rabbit's sperm count and the rabbit fertility returned. So they tested it and found out that, yes, just like John predicted, it was inhibiting aldehyde dehydrogenase. So, and then at the same time, Mike used this wind compound, you know, in mice and in vitro to show that it was acting in the way we thought that 
when, in fact, worked as a contraceptive by blocking vitamin A's conversion to retinoic acid. So the problem with when it worked well as a male contraceptive, but it wasn't specific. So it was inhibiting aldehyde dehydrogenases in the liver that were involved in alcohol metabolism. And that specificity means everything. Wind sticks onto all sorts of aldehyde dehydrogenases, and it prevents them from working, which, yeah, sure, works as a contraceptive, but it prevents the other forms of aldehyde dehydrogenase from doing things like metabolizing alcohol. And that makes the question then, can we get more specific? Can we use this information to design a male birth control option, a drug that targets only the ALDH in the testes and not the one in the liver? So then the goal became, can we come up with compounds that just block the aldehyde dehydrogenase in the testis without blocking the one in the liver. John thinks yes, and he's taken up the mantle of Wynn. He's still studying it now, and he's learning how he can develop new versions of the molecule that very specifically get at the testis. And uh, that process has turned out to be way harder than I would have ever believed. But I'm fortunate I have a team of good chemists and biochemists who've been testing these compounds. We've got pretty good compounds now that work well in vitro. The challenge has been getting those same compounds to work in vivo. And what John is saying here is that things are going well, but they're still working in the lab. And things get hard when they try to put the drug into animals. Things like how drugs are absorbed or metabolized, they're hard to optimize. And they're essential to making a drug that real live people can use. But he's not deterred. You know, I think these things take time. And time is something that male contraceptives have certainly taken. There's an old joke in the field that male contraception has been 10 years away for 50 years. We're 60 years beyond those early trials of when, and John is bringing it back into focus, trying to make the first version of the pill for men. There are countless stories like when, the first male contraceptive that was inadvertently discovered and it showed promising results, and then it didn't work out for one reason or another. The field of male contraception is littered with false starts. It's not like research isn't happening, it's just nobody's made it to the finish line yet. The, the science of it, making a new drug, is pretty damn hard. So why is making a male contraceptive so hard? Why have we been 10 years away from the male pill for half a century? I mean. It's 2020, as I sit here, and men, for all intents and purposes, still only have condoms and vasectomies as their methods of birth control. When you compare that to the dozens of methods that have been developed for women, I mean, it makes you ask the question, what happened? Why don't we have more options for men? I mean, the benefits of contraception are really well documented. It results in better health for women and children, tons of economic and educational benefit, and not only that, female contraception benefits men as well. Wouldn't it make sense to give at least one option to the three point whatever billion men out there and see if those benefits can translate? This project is called Intended, and what we're going to do here is tell you why a male birth control option hasn't been developed. Yet. I'm Logan Nichols, and I'm part of Male Contraceptive Initiative, a nonprofit that's dedicated to advancing male contraceptive development. In the studio with me, I have my partner in crime, Kevin Shane. Hey, Logan. Yeah, and with Intended, we're going to cover the history of male contraception, the projects currently in development, and we'll talk to real men and women around the globe who want these methods now. We're calling this project Intended because nearly half of all pregnancies in the U.S. and around 40% worldwide are unintended. We're also calling it Intended because so many people intended to get these options out there decades ago. And we're calling it intended because we intend to promote the great work being done today 
while capitalizing on the growing support from the general public for new mail methods. And we intend to broadcast this message as loudly and clearly as we can. So before we begin, some housekeeping. Our organization, MCI, we're a nonprofit that supports very specific research arenas and very specific projects. We're going to highlight some of that work, but this podcast isn't about us. It's about the world of male contraception. So we're going to give you the whole story, unbiased and open. And also, since we'll be talking about contraception, there's going to be some references to sex and body parts. Nothing explicit, but parents, young years, please be advised. So with that, let's start at the beginning. Male Contraceptive Initiative, this is intended. I'm Logan Nichols. And I'm Kevin Shane. Okay, so all that happened in the 1960s. The prisoner trials, the rise and fall of the wind molecule, and it's only now coming back? Yeah, and I mean, wind isn't the only project that people have been working on. This has been an active area study since those wind trials. Uh, it's just been hard to get something out there. All right, so we're talking 1960s, though. So that's 60 years of, of research, and all we have today are condoms and vasectomies. So that research didn't lead to any new products. I mean, is anything being investigated today? There are things happening today, yeah. Um, and there's lots of stories that lead up to what's happening today. Uh, today is also really exciting, though, because there's things that are like being tested in real live human beings and clinical trials, something that doesn't happen very often. Well, that's nice, and uh, that sounds very promising, and Certainly something we should chat about, but you know, Logan, I feel like, I feel like there's something we need to discuss first. Okay. I think we need to go back, like way back, back before the wind molecule, the, the birth control pill, back before contraception was part of everyday life. Okay. You know, in order to appreciate where we are and where we're heading, we really need to know where it all started. All right. And it all began with one simple little plant. Uh, it grew, uh, I would say, two to three feet, had broad leaves. We're talking with Dr. John Riddle. I, I'm John Riddle of North Carolina State University. Uh, been a professor there uh, one way or another since 1965. And the plant that Dr. Riddle is describing is Silphium, a supposed ancient method of contraception. This plant grew in an ancient city, in modern-day Libya. Yeah, that was Sereni, which the ruins of the Sereni are right on the coast. And it was the plant that made Sereni famous. It only grew in this one place, a thin coastal area about 100 miles long. Back in the time of Silphium, like the 2nd century BCE, the Greco-Roman world used Silphium for medicinal purposes that went well beyond contraception and included things like coughs, sore throats, aches and pains, and other maladies. Most of what we know about silphium comes from specific ancient texts, and their reports are that silphium was popular, like crazy popular. They made it onto their coins. On all of the coins would be the, the symbol of the plant. Now that was Romans worked it into poems and songs, and because of demand, the cost of the plant skyrocketed, reportedly worth its weight in silver and eventually gold. Dr. Riddle argues that its contraceptive effects were supposedly well known and that it was used widely among the Greco-Roman world. Demand was high, and then we lost it. It was the first plant that we can document that went extinct because of human exploitation. 
Silphium ceased to exist sometime before the transition out of BC and into AD. One text reported it as the first recorded plant made extinct by the actions of man, and some historians report the extinction event was entirely due to its contraceptive properties. And Silphium wasn't the only known historical contraceptive. There's one called the chaste tree, which was supposedly used by monks, and Queen Anne's lace, which still grows in the mountains of North Carolina. We don't really know how these ancient methods like Silphium worked, or really even if they worked at all. It could just be lore. However, if they did work, it would probably be in a way similar to hormonal contraception. We know some plants like the ones described can contain compounds that look and act a lot like estrogens, which are a big part of current hormonal contraceptives. And just for a second, let's say they did work. They might not have been the foolproof 90-odd percent effective methods we're familiar with today. Herbal medicine is complicated, and it requires the right plant, harvested at the right time, under the right conditions, and then processed in just the right way, and administered correctly. A difficult task when you're still trying to decide if the Earth revolves around the Sun. So it makes sense that humans gravitated towards methods that were simple and well understood. And the most popular contraceptive methods of all time rely on one simple mechanism, putting up a literal wall between the sperm and the egg. These methods are called barrier methods, and they're probably the simplest method of contraception that you're familiar with. They do exactly what they say, put a barrier up in between the sperm and the egg, preventing fertilization. This can include condoms, diaphragms, and so forth. And over time, these methods became well-known and popular. In fact, they're the overwhelming majority of what historical contraception means. So the most common form is also one you're likely familiar with, condoms. They really hit the map sometime in the 16th century. Around the year 1500, a massive syphilis outbreak was spreading across continents. Syphilis was a different disease back then and came with painful sores, ulcers, and a much higher chance of death than today. This outbreak was so bad, it literally caused the French army to retreat from certain cities during the Italian wars. By 1525, it had spread to Africa and Asia. New bouts of the disease were usually named after the enemy or country thought responsible, like the Turkish disease or the French evil. And in the middle of all this, an Italian physician wrote about a thing he made that would prevent the spread of syphilis. It was a linen sheath that went over the penis and was tied on with a ribbon. He claimed to have tested his device on 1,100 men and reported that none of them contracted the horrible disease. This is really the first well-documented exploration of early condoms. They were an expensive niche product at first, but their popularity grew. Even though they were mostly marketed to prevent disease, not as contraceptives due to moral standards of the time. Early condoms were made from linen or animal intestines, and by the 1700s they were used widely, but only by the upper and middle classes. They were just too expensive for common men and women to afford. They weren't without their controversy, however. Some thought that they would encourage men to have more sex with unsafe partners, and others just outright felt that contraception as a practice was immoral. Since that first description, not much has changed. In the mid-1800s, rubber vulcanization made the condoms easier to mass-produce. In the 1920s, latex was introduced into the equation. But since their invention, they've pretty much been the same idea. Cover the penis in something and prevent the sperm from getting into the female reproductive tract. It's a simple idea, and it works. We should absolutely mention that during this time, other barrier methods for women like the diaphragm and cervical cap were around, and plenty popular in their own right. 
and we'll get to them shortly, but stick with us for a few. Nowadays, condoms are marketed both for disease prevention and contraception, and there have been changes in design and novelty. Think glow-in-the-dark, flavored, textured versions. But the basic concept of put up a wall hasn't changed in centuries. We sell somewhere around 7 billion condoms a year, and they're still an imperfect solution. Due to improper or irregular use, your typical user has around a 15% chance of pregnancy using condoms in just one year. 15. Despite these odds, condoms remain one of the most popular contraceptive methods worldwide. Over 90% of women in the U.S. reported having used a condom in a national health report. And that's because condoms are one of the only reversible contraceptive methods available for men. In fact, it's currently one of only two contraceptive methods for men period. The other method is, of course, vasectomy. Barrier methods like condoms are simple. Stick something in between where the sperm come out and where they're going. Bam, you've got a contraceptive. But what if we just stop them from coming out in the first place? Vasectomies do just that. A surgical procedure that doesn't stop men from making sperm, it just stops the sperm from coming out of the body. Luckily, to talk about vasectomy, I had someone in mind. My name is David Sokol. I got my MD at the University of Buffalo School of Medicine in 1976. David is the co-founder of Male Contraceptive Initiative and our current board chair. I see him around the office pretty often, and I know he has had his own vasectomy. Anyway, I got involved in vasectomy uh, after having two kids, looked at my wife and I said, you know, if we have a third one, we'll be outnumbered. <laughs> David got a vasectomy when he was a younger man, and it stuck with him that there weren't more options for him, which contributed to his founding MCI. Vasectomies are a deceptively simple procedure. And a vasectomy um, is surgery in the scrotum to stop the sperm from traveling. You cut a piece one centimeter out, you tie both ends, you're done. Very simple and easy. And really what it does is sever the pipeline that sperm travel through when they leave the testes. After sperm are created and mature, they get shuttled through a tube called the vas deferens during ejaculation. Vasectomies take this tube and prevent sperm from flowing through it, usually through a quick cut. The procedure is common. About half a million men get it each year in the United States. And it's outpatient, with few side effects. But there's a catch. Vasectomies aren't intended to be reversed. You can't rely on, re on getting a reversal. It's expensive, it requires microsurgery, and it doesn't always work. So vasectomies are usually reserved for men who are family complete. This means that they aren't expecting to have more children, and that idea of permanence can put some men off. In addition to that, the surgery, safe and easy as it might be, can also be a deterrent. And worldwide, access to vasectomy can be limited. Lots of developing nations don't have the facilities or expertise to perform the procedure. There are some areas of the world that have seen vasectomy become popular, though. Australia has a particularly high rate of vasectomy, and Thailand has celebrated an annual festival in honor of their king that features free vasectomies on his birthday. And the king of Thailand said, I'm going to have a vasectomy on my birthday, and I invite all Thai men who have at least two children to have a vasectomy on my birthday. So that became an annual affair that they had the king's best, king's birthday
Intended is brought to you in part by YTH. YTH is a nonprofit that advances the health of youth and young adults through technology. YTH Live 2020 will be a dynamic virtual conference held August 3rd through 5th, 2020. In its 12th year, YTH Live will center youth and technology and technology's impact on youth health. YTH Live 2020 will focus on the overall health and wellness of key populations and how innovative technology can be used to improve health outcomes. YTH Live will showcase the brightest minds and cutting edge research in topics ranging from sexual and reproductive health to mental health, digital rights, and climate change. As a technology-based conference, they're excited to model how virtual platforms can provide engaging opportunities for participants to share, network, and innovate. To learn more about this virtual conference, visit yth.org. Again, that's yth.org. Okay, this is Logan. I've got Kevin with me. We're back in the studio. And Kevin, that's it. We've just got this centuries-old technology, condoms and vasectomies, and that's all that men have right now? Uh, yeah, pretty much. The field of contraception has seen explosive growth with the pill, IUDs, sponges, injectables. It just, there's not been a lot for men. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Women bear the physical burden of pregnancy, and there should be a whole bunch of options that fit the needs of as many women as possible before we start injecting men into this equation. Totally, totally. And, and you know, for the record, it's important to note that existing methods for women are far from perfect. There's lots of people advocating for additional female methods that have fewer side effects and cater to more users. So how did we get to where we have? How did we get to this slate of methods that exist now? Well, you know, honestly, it really all starts with the pill. And Heather Vidat, MCI's executive director, has that story. Nowadays, when you hear the pill, you know exactly which pill we're talking about. Capital T, capital P, the pill. That clamshell packaging, the icon of agency and independence. You know that the pill is a big deal. Something that revolutionized sex and society and truly undoubtedly changed the world. Hi, I'm Heather Vidat, and I'm MCI's executive director. My background is in contraception, and you might say I've spent the better part of my career building new options for women, but also wondering why we don't have more options for men. And the story of the pill has played a big part in all of that. But to understand exactly where the pill came from, we have to go pretty far back, before it was even an idea, and back to when merely sharing information about contraception was illegal. A good place to jump in is with this guy, Anthony Comstock. He was a Civil War Union soldier, postal inspector, and most importantly, an anti-vice activist in the 18 and 1900s. He kind of looks exactly like what I might think of when I think of an old-timey postal inspector. He's a bald, somewhat round man with big chops that connect to his mustache and no chin hair. It's that traditional Civil War kind of beard. And Anthony Comstock was a devoutly religious man that devoted his life to the idea of morality and righteousness. But remember that in that time, the late 19th century, morality had a lot to do with purity. So Comstock, in his role as the postal inspector, lobbied for and worked with Congress to create the Comstock laws that bear his name. These Comstock laws were a set of federal acts that made it criminal to circulate, quote unquote, obscene literature and articles of immoral use. But you might ask, what was obscene at that time? Well, pretty much anything to do with impurity. That was information, diagrams, letters, or objects that had anything to do with sex, sexual content, and in our case, contraceptives. And at this point in history, contraceptives weren't pills at all, but were more like condoms, cervical caps, and diaphragms. Barrier methods. Because that's what was available at the time. 
It was even so extreme that Comstock was destroying some anatomy textbooks, and Comstock was proud of this work. At one point, he was bragging that he was responsible for 4,000 arrests and the destruction of 15 tons of books and nearly 4 million pictures. By the early 1900s, this rigid enforcement of morality was a mainstay of the law. Purity was legally mandated and enforced. And around then, 1912 to be exact, a woman named Margaret Sanger had just moved to New York City. Uh, you know, as most people are, she was complicated uh, to be admired and to be criticized both. Um, yeah, I really did get to know her. That's Esther Katz. Uh, yes, I, my name is Esther Katz. I am the director uh, of the Margaret Sanger Papers Project. And the Sanger Papers Project is a collaborative effort to gather, research, and publish the papers of Margaret Sanger. See, Margaret Sanger is an icon in feminism, birth control, and sex education. In fact, she's the one that really took on the phrase birth control. Fun fact, she's the inspiration for Wonder Woman. Seriously, lasso of truth, superheroine, the whole deal. She was the genesis. Check it out. So anyway, Sanger was essentially the antithesis of the Comstock laws. She was for information sharing. She was for education and sexual and reproductive rights. She was a suffragette and a proponent of sex for enjoyment, not just reproduction. And most importantly, she was a fiercely independent woman. Yeah, I mean, you know, she was a pioneer in, in first of all, extolling the, the, the merits of enjoying uh, sex and sexuality, and secondly, of having women enjoy their own sexuality as well, something that, of course, when she first grew up was not something to be admired or even discussed. Uh, she thought that men and women could, you know, have a closer spiritual relationship if they had a more satisfactory sexual relationship. Sanger worked as a nurse in New York City, and she interacted a lot with working-class patients from immigrant neighborhoods. So she went to work as a visiting nurse, and that's where she encountered all of these immigrant women who were, in many cases, dying of too many pregnancies, too frequent childbirth. Sanger wanted to give these women ways to manage their pregnancies. She wanted to help them, but they were poor, uneducated, and didn't have access to the information they needed to manage their fertility. And of course, the Comstock laws prevented access to this information. So in 1914, Sanger launched a newsletter that contained information about how women could control their fertility. Of course, this detailed and precise information about various contraceptive methods ran up against the Comstock laws. She was actually indicted under the Comstock Act. Right, yeah. She was indicted, I think, on, I believe it was 11 counts of violating the federal postal laws for mailing obscene material. And rather than stand trial, she fled the country. She went on the lamb. She spent almost a year abroad. While overseas, Sanger gathered information about how others in the movement created networks of clinics that could offer contraceptive services to people in a way that they could use, directly and in their neighborhoods. Eventually, she decided she needed to bring this to America. And so she came back, willing to face the federal, the federal charges but her daughter died just after she returned, and the sympathy that she received at the death of her youngest child led the government to drop the charges, to not, not to prosecute. Sanger was devastated at the death of her daughter. She wrote, The joy and fullness of life went out of it then, and has never quite returned. It impacted her greatly, and you can see this pain in her writings from that time period. But she went back to work. Sanger kept moving forward and used information that she gathered overseas about networks and clinics. In 1916, she opened a family planning and birth control clinic in Brooklyn, New York. 
in which she would provide the um, the means um, uh, for contraception. Um, that is recipes for the gels, recipes for the douches. Mostly it was the books that she was selling and they closed her down. She was arrested nine days later. She continued working and was arrested again. In her trial, she was offered a lenient sentence if she promised not to break the law again. But she took a pretty defiant stand. She said, I cannot respect the laws that exist today, and took the jail time. Spent 30 days in the Queens County Penitentiary for this. All in all, Sanger was jailed eight times. But this time was particularly important. She appealed this conviction strategically, and the argument was that she wasn't distributing information for the purposes of contraception, but instead to prevent the spread of disease. Now remember that the methods of this time were mostly barrier methods like condoms, which could prevent some disease. At that point, it was fine to avoid getting diseases from sex. The sex itself was the thing that had to be by the book. And on appeal, um, the federal district court ruled that, the, the, not, I'm sorry, the New York State uh, courts ruled that she could offer contraceptive if used to prevent venereal disease. This appeal was the first big step that allowed Margaret Sanger to promote contraceptives. As long as you spoke the right code words, it was all legal and fine. The public got more and more involved, and after a few years, contraception was less controversial among the public, although still technically illegal. By the end of the 1930s, the majority of Americans accepted birth control. And this acceptability of the public did wonders for the spread of Sanger's ideas, but the methods that were out there still had their downsides. And Sanger was always looking for cheaper, more effective, and easier-to-use forms of contraception. The barrier methods were better than nothing at all, but there had to be a better solution. She always talked about a magic pill, um, uh, you know, kind of this magic bullet that she that that maybe would um, uh, come to fruition. And you know, lo and behold, by the end of the 1940s, she gets introduced to Gregory Pincus. Gregory Pincus was a researcher that studied the relationships between hormones and reproductive systems. And Pincus had recently discovered that progesterone would inhibit ovulation in women. Pincus was looking at progesterone and was looking at, at ways that would would make it more effective in some kind of injectable or uh, pill form. And in Sanger, Pincus had found someone that was excited about his work. She was looking for that magic pill, and Gregory Pincus had the ability to deliver it to her in a nice, neat package. At Pincus's uh, Foundation for Experimental Biology, uh, he began working with some of the other uh, scientists that were working the same general area on the notion of creating a hormonal contraceptive. But the catch? Creating a drug is hard work, and even more than that, it's expensive. Even in the early 50s. Someone was going to have to pay for all these studies and all this science. But remember, contraception, even at this point, is still only legal for disease prevention. Nobody was willing to get behind this topic, especially publicly, and especially with so much money. That is at least until Catherine McCormick came along. They'd known each other quite a long time. Uh, uh, Catherine McCormick, McCormick had known Sanger back in uh, the 19, I think it was the 19... 30s or so, on and off, you know, not not well, but, you know, she had been a suffragist for a long time, Catherine McCormick, and, and a supporter of birth control. Catherine McCormick was an heiress and a friend of Margaret Sanger. So they got back in touch by the end of the 1940s, 
and um, yeah, when McCormick came to that, and they stayed, they were friends. She uh, she would often put Sanger up when she was in um, California. Catherine McCormick's husband was Stanley McCormick, heir to the international harvester fortune, making the family one of the wealthiest in America. When Stanley died, Catherine inherited an estate of over $35 million, which was just a tremendous sum of money for the time. And Sanger got McCormick to buy into this idea of a contraceptive pill for women. She was already into philanthropy and had leadership roles in the suffragette movement, so this seemed like a natural fit, a way to improve the lives of women with her now vast fortune. McCormick puts about $3 million uh, into this research so that uh, first lab tests and clinical tests and human trials could take place. For what it's worth, the math gets squishy, but that's somewhere in the neighborhood of $30 million by today's standards. But again, the, uh, the idea was to inhibit ovulation and do this temporarily. The basic lab science was done by Gregory Pincus and his research team under the close watch of McCormick, while Sanger generally pushed to move the studies along and get things to the public as quickly as possible. By the mid-1950s, it was time to try the pill for real, in live women. The first trials for the female pill were in Puerto Rico, and they were the basis of its eventual approval, both for the treatment of menstrual side effects as well as for contraception. But these trials were controversial, and just like the prisoner trials used in the Wynn 18446 experiments, they look pretty unpleasant in retrospect. Uh, yeah, a lot of people are, that were very upset because of the trials that were done in Puerto Rico. The, the notion that maybe the women weren't being told the whole story of what they were taking. And, you know, they, they chose less educated poor women for these trials. These early trials in Puerto Rico were using a very high dosage of the pill, which came with side effects that were likely superpowered versions of what women experience today. Things like nausea, bloating, depression, weight gain, and so on. This high dosage also induced blood clotting, and although three deaths occurred during the trials, they were considered coincidences at the time. This is compounded by the fact that many of the subjects were illiterate, and the language barrier meant that often participants didn't understand the risks of taking this experimental new drug. Really, they didn't even know that they were experimental test subjects. What they did know was that they were being given a pill, free of charge, to prevent pregnancy. And the data that came from these women was a big part of getting the first female contraceptive for women approved. There were trials in L.A. and other places, too, but the Puerto Rico trials were essential to getting the pill approved. And in 1957, the first combined female oral contraceptive was approved for the treatment of menstrual disorders. It got the name Enovid. Enovid was approved as a contraceptive in 1960, but it was only accessible to married women. There are lots of stories about single women borrowing wedding rings or finding doctors that would write them a prescription because, despite the restrictions, it was popular. Women wanted a way to delay or prevent pregnancy, and this was the first reliable, female-controlled, long-acting way to do it. It literally changed lives. And how did Sanger feel about the achievement? She was thrilled. She was thrilled with the progress that was being made. She thought, really, this was the answer. Uh, But she also understood that Pills, medication, required doctor visits. And once again, that didn't solve the problem that she was pushing for, which was a contraceptive that that any woman could use, rural or urban, uh, rich or poor. Um, You know, if you had to go to a physician, if you had to get a prescription, um, it, it, it became problematic. Sanger was focused on access and affordability, getting contraceptives to people who needed them in a way that had as few barriers as possible. That's something that many organizations still advocate for today. 
When Sanger died in 1966, there were still legal restrictions on birth control that limited its access. Female birth control became prescribable nationwide in 1972, when a Supreme Court case established that unmarried people had the same rights to contraception as married people. When the pill came out in 1960, it ignited the sexual revolution and women's liberation movement. Women entered the workforce in droves. This societal mobility increased education, advanced their careers, and led to better outcomes for their children. It started conversations between people about things that had been taboo before. Sex, contraception, and premarital sex in particular. These things all started to become more normalized than ever before. This was a seismic change in how women were able to have control over a key feature of their own bodies, and that was a big deal. The pill landed on Time Magazine's cover in 1967 with the title story, Freedom from Fear. They knew that contraceptives would have long-range cultural and societal effects well before those effects actually landed. Loretta Lynn, the famous country singer, had a song called The Pill that tells the story of a wife who's tired of having kids over and over again and just started taking the pill. All these years I've stayed at home while you had all your fun. And every year that's gone by, another baby's come. She's frank and straightforward, and she's just totally got this sense of independence and freedom. Like she's taking this to get the life she's always wanted. You set this chicken your last time, cause now I've got the pill. The pill was a moment. They felt it then, and it was just as big a deal as it should have been. But it wasn't all great. Early versions of the pill had higher dosages than current-day versions, and that caused some of those more intense side effects like women in the Puerto Rican clinical trials experienced. Books were published by critics, women included, that illustrated these side effects and argued that the pill wasn't safe. Today's dosages are much lower than the early versions, but women still experience side effects that are unpleasant and in some cases severe. Let's be clear here. The pill is a good thing. It gives agency to women and allows them to have options in choosing if and when to have a family. Today, the pill, alongside various other forms of contraception, is generally really safe. Contraception has decreased the wage gap and increased education and economic mobility for all women. And it's a good thing for the public, too. For every dollar spent on contraception, government saves $7 in return. Good luck trying to find 700% savings anywhere else in the government. Women can now live their lives the way that they want to. Women have options. Sometimes it feels like you're picking the least worst option, but nonetheless, it's a welcome option. I asked Esther, the historian from the Sanger Papers, how Margaret Sanger would have felt about the introduction of a pill for men. Here's what she said. For Sanger, the notion of uh, a real sexual union, spiritual union, mental, emotional union would have been even stronger with a wider array of contraceptive options for both the man and the woman. I mean, I think, I think she would have been so excited. Okay, so we've had this history lesson. The pill was this cultural revolution spurred by just a few people with funding, drive, and science. It didn't happen by accident. It took decades of focused effort a small fortune, and some great scientists. And because of that concentrated force, we've now got this cultural centerpiece that some might argue has changed the future of humanity. Why didn't the same happen for the male pill? We heard about the wind molecule, which crashed and burned because of side effects, but that isn't the only male contraceptive that looked like it was going to go the distance. Lots of other methods have withered on the vine, and not all of them were because of side effects. 
Is the reason we only have condoms and vasectomies because they're good enough? Is it something more scientific? Or is it something more subversive and unmeasurable? On our next episode, which is out right now, we tell stories of male contraceptives that never saw the light of day. Contraceptives that are even older than the wind molecule, which has been around since the 50s. We'll talk about male contraceptives that have seen clinical trials and been tested in over 10,000 men, but still not made it to your local shelves. We'll also tell you why nobody, especially the big pharmaceutical companies, has stepped up to support male contraceptives. Find our next episode wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Heather Vidat. I'm Kevin Shane, and this is Intended. Special thanks for this episode goes out to Catherine Carpenter and the MCI Board of Directors. Additional thanks to Beth Snyder, Jill Surgison, and Becky Sullivan. Music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Intended is written and produced by myself and Kevin Shane out of the offices of Male Contraceptive Initiative in Durham, North Carolina. Heather Vidot is our Executive Director. I'm Logan Nichols. Intended is a project of Male Contraceptive Initiative, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to advancing the development of reversible, non-hormonal contraceptive options for men. For more information or to donate to our cause, visit malecontraceptive.org. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and other social networks by searching Male Contraceptive. If you like our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes and share us with your friends. If you'd like to be a part of Intended, want to share your thoughts on male contraception, or you just want to reach out, record a 30-second voice memo on your phone and email it to intended at malecontraceptive.org. You just might make it onto the show. Thanks for listening. And before we go, here's something completely different. One then a pra with a shorasota that dropped a varachirth passed to the rota. The pilgrims to Canterbury, they went. Uh. <laughs> <laughs>